Well, good morning, church. Certainly good to be here this morning. God is good? And all the time? Amen. Certainly good to be here. If you're visiting with us, let you know you're our honored guest. We're very thankful that you're here with us today. You've come to us at a unique time. We are in the middle of a series of lessons called Portfolio. And uh, this series of lessons is designed to look at Luke's gospel and to collect some portraits of Jesus and for the purpose of getting to know him better and for the purpose therein to help others know him better. But we're doing so in a particular way. We're taking, a, a, I guess you could say, a literary approach to, uh, to this Gospel of Luke. Um, we're looking at Luke and the story of Jesus through the lens of the hero's journey. Uh, a man by the name of Thomas Campbell several years ago uh, went around the world. He's a sociologist and, uh, and also sort of a, um, a literary guy himself. And, and he went around and he captured the world's stories, the hero stories. And what he, what he discovered is that humanity, like as a species, right? As a species, we have a way of capturing a way of uh, viewing and understanding a hero. There's a formula that we as people, as humans, use to conceptualize a hero. And so the reason he came to this realization is because uh, through time and space and no matter what culture he went to, no matter what, what time in history he went to, there was this same formula that kept popping up the same way we sort of conceptualize what it means to be a hero. And it's so impactful that uh, Hollywood and uh, authors and screenwriters and artists all turn to this same formula to develop a, a hero. Uh, and the reason is because it, it works, right? The way we conceptualize a hero is pretty universal. And so if we approach Luke's gospel through this way of conceptualizing a hero, maybe, just maybe, we'll come to know him um, in a better, more intimate, more personal way. So that's what we've done. We've looked at Jesus through the lens of the hero's journey, and we've, we've followed him from the beginning, uh, where we saw him. It was, uh, it was a mild, uh, mild-mannered lad at the beginning of the story, Joseph's boy. And we saw the tension being created around how people saw him as Joseph's son, but in reality, his essence, he was, in fact, the son of God. That's what moves the character through any any journey, any story, this tension that exists between his identity at the beginning and the essence that will unfold as he takes his role and conquers the dragon at the end. Um, we see the hero beginning to, to form and to take his position. We then saw him uh, embrace the call to adventure. For, for Jesus, the call to an adventure was this recognition that Israel, and really by proxy, all of humanity from the beginning to the end were in darkness. The damsel was in distress, and so he took up the gauntlet. He decided to take action. He crossed the threshold. He was baptized. And Luke says in chapters 3 and 4 there that he was beginning his ministry. He, he crossed this threshold. And the moment he crossed the threshold, two things happen. Uh, the first one is we hear a genealogy that says, is this Joseph's boy or the son of God? 
The second thing is Jesus goes into uh, the wilderness where he's tempted. And what is the temptation about? If you are the Son of God, then fill in the blank. Over and over again, the, the Satan challenges his essence versus identity. Following the temptation, we see Jesus go to his local synagogue where he again uh, sort of drops the mic and says, No, what you've heard about in Scripture is being fulfilled today. I am, in fact, Messiah. I am this, this long-awaited hero. And he drops the mic, as it were, and he moves into the road of trials. That's how the heroes developed in the hero's journey. It begins with a conflict between essence and identity. It moves into a call to action. At one point, the character crosses the moment of threshold, and he's committed to the journey at hand, and then he enters the road of trial. The road of trials will take the hero all the way into consummation of this, of this glorious story. It's the longest section in the hero's journey, and it's filled with all sorts of realities. We'll see companions along the way, and we'll see enemies. And we've seen that thus far. We've seen Jesus begin to call disciples, and we've heard Jesus last week begin to deal with his detractors and his enemies, all as a connection to this road of trials. Campbell says, the original departure into the land of trials represents only the beginning of the long and really perilous path of initiatory conquest and moments of illumination. Dragons have now to be slain and surprising barriers passed again and again. Meanwhile, there will be magnitudes of preliminary victories, unsustainable ecstasies, and momentary glimpses of the wonderful land. As the hero takes the journey, he gathers companions. In this case, he gathers disciples. And Jesus begins to have these miniature victories over obstacles and facing uh, many dragons, as you were, along the way. Many challenges and conflicts. Last week we saw, or the week before last, rather, we saw him face Peter, who's standing in the boat of self-righteousness. Ask Jesus to depart from him because, well, when Jesus... His essence is revealed to him. Like Isaiah, he's immediately aware of his sinfulness. And so he has this, uh, this inferiority sort of dynamic taking place. Jesus, Jesus responds to him in mercy and kindness and says, I'm, I'm enough to satisfy you. And then last week we, we saw Jesus uh, approach his enemies, as it were. Again, like Peter, they're standing in, in, in a place of self-righteousness and stuff. Instead of inferiority, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day had a spirit of superiority for the same reason. If Peter struggled because he knew he violated the law, well, his leaders struggled because they thought they had kept it all. And last week we heard Jesus say, no, you got to come to me too. I'm the only person who can satisfy your troubled hearts. And now, well, now we get a momentary glimpse of the wonderful land. A momentary glimpse of the wonderful land. Luke chapter 6 and the passages that were read this morning uh, is, uh, is referred to as the, the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew's Gospel refers to it as the Sermon on the Mount. But both of them reflect this particular candidate's platform for the future. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I sort of avoid politics as a rule. Um, and even this morning, I'm going to avoid politics as a rule. Um, because I, I just 
don't have a whole lot of time for it. But I think it's interesting, uh, the political platforms that people take, um, the, the candidacy, candidacy races that are unfolding. When I, when I think of Jesus on the road to the cross, I feel like he's, I feel like he's on the way to an election. Because every time you see Jesus, he's constantly putting forth a, a platform. And so uh, this week, as I was thinking about how do we, how do we engage this narrative, um, uh, I was bombarded like you were with all these different political platforms that were, that were coming to me off of the screen. Make America Great Again and whatever the other platform is, right? Um, a political platform, I looked up the definition, is a, is a series of positions on political issues that is used to promote a political party or a candidate. It often comes in the form of a manifesto, a carefully worded political document that appeals to the voters by, uh, by touching on numbers of issues which are important to them. So you have a candidate for, for either party or, or whatever party there is, and they're speaking this manifesto to their constituents? What is it? Constituents, thank you. Hey, you're listening. That's cool. Constituents, right? There, there's, there's Republican candidates that say this is your preferred future. There's Democratic uh, candidates that try to articulate uh, their, their preferred future. There's independents that try to articulate their preferred future. In a real manner of speaking, this is what Jesus is doing. On the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, he is presenting his platform. It is his presentation, his manifesto, his description, as we said a moment ago, of the wonderful land. And this platform comes in three ways. Our candidate suggests, number one, a new community. Number two, a new set of values. And number three, uh, new sets of resources to make that community possible. Jesus is very much like a candidate. I guess the only difference is we elect candidates that represents the people's choice. When Jesus takes the mount, you need to hear this. This is not just a suggestion. He's not representing your opinion of what life should be. He's representing what life is supposed to be like. We are not electing Jesus as Lord. He sets the, the, the limit, the, the definition the glorious future, and then calls us to live in it with a new community, new values, and new resources. So what does this say? How does this text refer to a, a community, a, a new community, if you will? Well, uh, it, just like Matthew's gospel, um, and, and just like many other places, in fact, even in the book of, of Acts, Luke will return to this trope again. But if you want to talk about community in the context of the first century with a historical background of Israel, you're, you're going to do something. You're going to suggest something. You're going to use some symbolism. Uh, you're going to suggest that um, there are 12, 12 men that are coming with you, special men, apostles. Luke 6, 12 to 13 precedes the sermon uh, on the plain. Jesus calls his disciples in Matthew's gospel right before um, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. One of those days, Jesus went out to a, a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Why, why 12? 
You know, in our society, uh, this number may not mean a lot, but in antiquity, if you were talking to uh, the children of Abraham, when you say people are calling 12 people together, it was very significant. You see, this event had happened once before. There was 12 that gathered before the presence of God and received the Word of God. It was Exodus. It was Mount Sinai. And 12 tribes of Israel uh, were gathered there to hear from and to receive the Word of God. The Lord. You know, when you talk about that, typically the word of receiving the word of God, a lot of people in their mind do this mental math that is not helpful, a sort of mental math that that contributes to the sort of thinking um, that Lisa was mentioning this morning, the sort of thinking that says, if I make one mistake, I'm or one sin, I'm lost. Um, That mental math is, well, God is giving us his word so that we can come follow His Word, and His Word can teach us what to do to be saved. That really, really doesn't pan out well in the narrative. At least at Sinai, anyways, right? God had already what? Saved them. God had already brought them through the, the, the Red Sea. He'd already brought them and successfully redeemed them from their imprisonment and their slavery. He's not giving them the law to save them. Salvation is always personal. Salvation isn't a plan. It's a person. Christianity isn't like Buddhism or any other world uh, religion that says, here are the rules. If you follow, you'll get it right. And then you can experience heaven or experience nirvana. Jesus is our salvation. God is responsible for that. He doesn't give them a law to save them. He saves them and gives them a law to make them a people, a kingdom, to live accordingly. And Jesus, well, Jesus is doing the very same. Jesus is giving us, them and us by extension, what we need not to be saved, what we need to live as saved people, to live in community. Have you ever thought about how just important, how how important community is? Um, Being in community, in relationship with other people. Do you realize how important that is? You know, they did uh, some, some really bizarre studies uh, back during the time of World War II. Isolation is deadly. If you isolate a child, even if you take care of its, its biological needs, if you isolate a child from its mother, from its, from its fellowship, from its love and the community of around it, it will die. The most, one of the most heinous Punishments you can give to people in prison is what kind of confinement? Right? Removing them from community. It's, it's, it's just vital to us. It's so important. Have you ever noticed that if, if you discover something beautiful or amazing, you want to bring it back and let everyone else see it? 
You ever notice that? I mean, sometimes we hide it because we don't want to share it with other people, right? I found like the last donut, right? But something beautiful and amazing, like you, like movies, every once in a while, we'll see a great movie. Uh, yesterday, we saw a great movie about the little troll guys, and it was great. And I'm like, we got to share this with our friends, <laughs> right? Beauty is, is one of those things you want to share with. In fact, beauty even grows as you share it in community. Because you think, oh, it's beautiful in and of itself, but look at the way that Dawson is looking at this thing. Look at the way that Keith is responding to this. You begin to magnify. Beauty even grows in the context of community. And not only does beauty grow, but burdens are lifted in the context of community. We don't just want our people to see our treasure. We want our people to help us with our tragedy. Community is that important to us. It's vital. And if we don't have it, something is amiss. At the end of people's lives, I know that you've heard this before, but it's true. At the end of people's lives, people aren't generally asking, hey, surround me with my accomplishments and my things. They're typically asking people, surround me with my people. Let me have my family. Why? Because community is that important to us. And yet, I don't know if you've noticed, but community seems to, there's something wrong with it. (laughs) Right? Have you ever noticed that? Like, community is kind of broken. Things aren't, don't operate the way they should. We, We isolate and shame and shun and we judge. The powerful become more powerful. The weak become more weak. Instead of there being uh, blessedness in the context of, of, of community, there, there ends up being social pressure and peer pressure. Conflict is one of those deepest needs of ours. And yet, if we survey life, we, we have to readily admit there's something amiss here. Something not quite the way it should be. Well, biblically speaking... That's because community has been disconnected from God. Biblically speaking, that means there's a community whose leadership isn't Jesus, but whose leadership is connected to whatever else the community feels is important. And so when Jesus stands on the mountain, or this hillside, rather, as Jesus stands on this button on the computer. Um, he, is, he is communicating, I have an answer for this vitally important thing called community. I have an answer for it. I can offer you something. He's a candidate, and we desperately need to be on board his campaign, because he offers a new set of values. At one level, you can look at the, 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 the lordship of Jesus as, uh, as a new administration. You know, with any new administration, there are new sets of values that determine and affect every aspect of everyday life. Values are, are really impactful. For instance, if you go to Starbucks, one of their highest values is connecting with their customers. You guys notice that? Like the barista, if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing as a customer service, they're supposed to really engage you, have a little dialogue with you, and they're supposed to do so even if there's a line. 
Did you know that? You're supposed to still maintain communication and a level of, of connection with people, even if there is a, a line forming. So I encourage you, be patient at Starbucks. They're only doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be treating you as a person and not another number walking through their, their shop. Um, now, there are other places where it's very clear customer service, customer service isn't the highest value. You ever been there? Ever experienced that? You ever been around someone or some uh, cashier, for instance, that is all about uh, quantity rather than quality? Right? You get them in and you get them out as fast as you possibly can. Right? Not necessarily rude. They're just all about business. You ever been to Aldi's? Right? What do they do with your food when it comes to the end of the line? Whoom! I mean, they throw that stuff into the car. The first time I saw that, I was like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be bagging this. Why are you throwing that stuff back into my cart? There was no, like, no eye contact. It was just like, hum, 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 wow. $55, please. You know, like, what? Right? They're not being rude, per se. They, different value. Get them in. Get them out. That's how values shape things. Even everyday aspects of life. New administrations, new values, new ways of doing things we've done forever. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He begins talking about the values that this current community is experiencing. There's a couple of lists here. If you've ever put them side by side, you'll notice something very interesting. There's the woes, right, to the rich, the fool, the, the laughing, those who, with great recognition, versus uh, those who are poor, hungry, uh, who are in grieving and weeping and are rejected. Any, anybody notice something unique about those two categories? You have rich, you have what? What is the connection between rich and poor? They're antonyms, right? They're opposites. Right? What about the fool and the, the hungry? Those who are succeeding, gloating, laughing versus those who are weeping. Those who are seeing uh, recognition and those who are being rejected. You know, it's interesting. It's very tempting, in fact, to talk about an upside-down kingdom. Have you guys ever heard of that, that phrase before? And I agree, I think upside-down kingdom is a, an apt way to describe Jesus' kingdom. But on another level, this happens... Uh, you you, you kind of really struggle with that concept. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Because sometimes it's articulated, okay, what God is for is on the uh, left side of your screen. It's opposite up here, right? What God is for is on the left side of your screen. What God is against is on the, the right side. So God is against rich, satisfied, happy, recognized people. And God is for the poor, hungry, weeping, and rejected. Like, God's kingdom isn't filled with rich, full, laughing, and accepted people. God's kingdom is only made up of the poor, hungry, weeping, rejected. Who wants to be a part of the kingdom? Doesn't sound too much like a compelling platform, does it? Kind of misogynistic, actually. It's like, you know, hit me again, I need another. <laughs> Because what God is after is the poor, blind, pitiful, so on and so forth. 
I want to suggest to you that these qualities, these woes and these blessings are, are, are two extremes that are responding to cultural hierarchies. They're two extremes that are responding to power and comfort and success and claim. And what Jesus is asking us, he's not asking us to take a vow of poverty. He's not asking us to, uh, to, to not eat. He's not asking us to, uh, to never win a competition. He's, never, he's not asking us not to, 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 to be known. Nor is he endorsing you and asking you, you've got go you to go be poor. You've got to go be hungry. You've got to go and, and grieve. You have to be rejected by everybody. That's kind of how it ends up sort of being communicated, like that's, that's not really what's going on. But what's really going on is, is Jesus is cautioning this community and reminding this community that in relationship with him, they will be free from such things as power and comfort and success and acclaim as false gods in their life. They, in other words, uh, they will be free from the, the need to be rich at the expense of the poor. At the same time, they will be free from the despair that comes if you're poor. They'll be free from this expectation of a comfortable, easy life. And you'll be free of the despair that comes if your life isn't so comfortable. You'll be free from the need to succeed and gloat those rewards and successes over others. And you'll also be free from the despair that comes from losing, whether it's a competition or a loved one. You'll be free from the need to be known. And you'll be free from the despair of feeling like no one knows you. Keller says this about it. He says, what Jesus is saying, Jesus, when you, when you enter in relationship with me, Jesus says, I create in your inner being a radical freedom so that power and comfort and success and can claim have no control over you. Once you get that radical freedom psychologically, it also changes all of your social relationships. Once you get that radical inner freedom, community is created with all other people who have that same freedom. This is once you're free from the, from the construct and the enslavement that we have to power and comfort and success and acclaim, you're free from those things. You're free from the pride. You're free from the Pharisee's superiority dynamic. And you're free from Peter's inferiority. You're free from the demands of having to be a somebody in the eyes of others. And you're free from the despair if you happen not to be in the eyes of anybody. See, this idea of blessing is the idea of deep satisfaction with God. And when you get that, when you are free from those things, and you are no longer enslaved to those things, then 
you can actually have the community that he's asking for. Because until then, the Peters will still always feel this sense of inferiority and disdain and exclusion. And the superiority, the Pharisees, will continue to be prideful. And by the way, how do the Pharisees react to the sinners? And how do the sinners react to the Pharisees? You can't create community like that. You can only create community when Jesus is king. When he is satisfying our need for power and comfort and success and acclaim. And acclaim. Jesus isn't asking you to take a vow of poverty, nor is he asking you to hate the rich and powerful. He's asking you to be free of both of those and find salome, find peace, find blessed life and relationship with him. And when that happens, something amazing takes place. Not only do we do we have this new community made possible by these new valuables? We have, we have new resources that make it possible for us to do it. Right? Because when I hear things like that, when I hear expectations like that from Jesus, the first thing I come up with is, how in the world am I going to do that? <laughs> because I feel a little despair sometimes, and sometimes I feel a little pride. How about you? I, I falter on either side of those things. I really want people to like me. Like a lot. How about you? I'm, on, I'm in the wrong profession for that, I know. But still, I really want people to like me. And I, I falter to that side or, or one side or the other. I really want to be successful. I don't want to lose people. I don't want to lose things. Right? I, I see the wisdom in, in, in allowing Christ to be what we need Him to be. I see the, the, the enslavement on either side of that. But I wonder how in the world is it possible? Well, I believe Jesus gives us uh, some insight in, into what makes it possible. He's kind of sly. Actually, Jesus does something here in Luke's Gospel that you never, ever see Jesus doing anywhere else. He uses the word sinner the way that we often do. You know what I'm talking about. Those sinners over there, <laughs> you know, like a disparaging remark about some category of person, right? Jesus usually doesn't speak like this. But in Luke's gospel, he actually uses, you know, those, those guys over there, or those gals, those sinners. And then he does this really interesting rhetorical thing. Uh, or, or literary thing, or whatever you want to call it. He, he has this reverse at the end. And, it, and if you're paying attention, Jesus is calling us out. Right? He starts by saying, those sinners over there. But then he ends by saying, but we're really talking about you. And the words he uses to describe us at the end are way, way stronger than those sinners. Right? Listen, listen to how he does this here. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that? Even those sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, and what credit is that to you? Even those sinners do that. 
And if you lend to those who you expect repayment, what credit is it to you? Even those sinners uh, lend to sinners expecting to be paid in full, but love your enemies. Do good to those to them that lend to you. Uh, lend, excuse me, it's hard to read. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High God, because He is kind to the what? Ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Heavenly Father is merciful. He has this, this really amazing turn of phrase. Those sinners over there, those sinners over there, those sinners over there. Hey, you love them. How? Well, remember, you're a child of God, and he's really, really merciful to people who are ungrateful and what? Wicked. Guess what part of the paradigm we get to play? Imagine this conversation. Dad, Dad, why do I have to be nice to them? They're jerks. Well, because, son, I'm kind to big old jerks, too. Oh. Oh. I wonder if the disciples really understood what was going on that day. Like, why should I be kind and, and, and merciful to them? What Jesus is saying is you find resource to be kind and merciful to those sinners because you are one. And God has extended mercy to you. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Which means there are reasons for us to be condemned and reasons for us to be judged and reasons for us... Because why? We are, well, we are the un, ungrateful and wicked. And we have received mercy. Amen? That's how this community empowers itself. Through the gospel. Uh, Miroslav Volv, uh, he's a, a philosopher, religious uh, professor at Yale. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. <laughs> I don't have to be kind to sinners. I don't have to pray. I don't have to, to be empowered to love others because I'm not one of those people. They exclude themselves from those things. But listen to what he goes on to say. But no one can be in the presence of God, of the crucified for Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy for the sphere of, uh, uh, for the, sphere of the monstrous and to the sphere of the shared humanity and herself from the sphere of the proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. You can't be around Jesus for long until you begin to realize, I have more than enough power, more than enough mercy, more than enough grace, because I have a sinner just like everyone else, and they're sinners too. And I'm compelled to love and accept and to tolerate and do all of those things I need to do. You see, the Sermon on the Mount says what should be 
large and in charge in the context of Christianity is a notion that we stub our nose at nowadays called tolerance. How many of you guys have heard the word tolerance in the last year? How many of you guys hear the word tolerance in a good way? We usually hear the word tolerance and say, ah, yeah, tolerating all that stuff. That's a bad thing, right? In the, in the world, tolerance gets communicated as just accept everyone for, for what they do, and it's okay, just don't worry about it. Everyone can do their own thing. And so Christians' reaction to that is, nope, tolerance is a bad thing because tolerance means I'm accepting sin. And you know what? Both of those definitions are crud. That's Pauline, by the way. Both of those definitions are wrong. Tolerance isn't acceptance of whatever anyone else thinks and believes and and practices. Neither is tolerance um, a rejection of people for what they believe and practice. Tolerance is biblical. Tolerance is... I'm accepting you, I'm loving you, I'm going to be a part of your life, despite the fact that I don't agree with. Or, for that matter, as, Paul, or as Jesus would say, even if your enemy is after you. Not just someone you disagree with, but your enemy. He says, no, pray for them and do good to them. Sounds pretty tolerating to me, Amen. We really, really got to watch how this community forms. Because I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. It would be possible, I would, I would dare even possible, probable, that we could create a community where we see each other as, as sinners because we all are coming to Jesus and, and, and loving each other. But, but we, we have to be careful that we don't become like this, this little enclave of people who are against the world. Like we're all the saved ones and everyone else who's not practicing life the way I expect them to. Well, those people, right? I don't believe in those people. I don't, I don't, I have no place for them. I have no tolerance for them. I have no, no, no community for them. And Jesus would say, you're ridiculous. He would Don't you know you're the wicked and ungrateful? Why in the world would you judge the wicked and ungrateful? You are the wicked and ungrateful. The only difference with you is you have mercy in the presence and in covenant relationship with Christ. That's the only way, by the way. That's the only way that glorious future will ever become a reality when we take ourselves off the place of king and judge and Pharisee, and we simply take the place besides Jesus as one who needs mercy along the next, then we can love each other the way we should. Then we can be free from the things that, 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 that force us to think the person flipping burgers is somehow less than the person flipping houses. Right? Only then, 
Only then can we have the community, the glorious future that Jesus is expecting. How many of you want that this morning? Amen. Let's all be standing. Be honest. Some of us don't want that. Some of us do not want that. Some of us do not want someone who doesn't behave and believe like I do to go to the same church as me because it makes me uncomfortable. Am I lying? There are people and personalities and theologies that believe that. Homogeny as a church is a clear expectation that you don't understand grace. There should be people from all cultures, people who struggle with all types of sin. Amen? Here. They should be here. And we should expect them to be here. And if they're not, we have to ask ourselves a question. What message are we sending? What communication are we offering? The only thing, Paul says, that people need to hear from us is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Oh, man. i got to stop before I just keep going. Let's just sing. Can you turn it up, please? my heart be the mountain where i run the fountain i drink from hope
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Be blessed, church.